Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Well, it's great to see everybody today, and uh, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. As I think they may have just said, I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and uh, I'm so glad you're here. Hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. Hey, uh, three weeks ago now, we started a series on stewardship, and uh, this is an incredibly important subject, and regrettably, I actually haven't done a full-blown series on stewardship for more than three years, and so um, we kind of got some catching up to do, and uh, some really, really important truths to share, things that are very impactful for our lives. So I'm going to do a teaching and then close uh, with a, a, a next step that, that uh, I think you will find interesting and hopefully very meaningful for you. I'm just going to jump right in, okay? So two weeks ago when we launched the series, I opened a vein of truth that seemed to resonate with a lot of folks. Um, I know all of you weren't here two weeks ago, and those of you who were probably don't have in the forefront of your mind exactly what I said. I'll take just a minute to try to catch you up with a really big idea, a a, a way of viewing life that uh, should, I think, inform our particular discussion of stewardship. I suggested that we are a people who are incredibly blessed and that these blessings manifest in a multitude of ways and that for most of us, these blessings also include material blessings. Material blessings, specifically money and things, are not the most important aspect of blessings. I want to say that and put an underline or two or three or four under it. But the fact that material blessings are not the most important aspect of blessings doesn't mean that we should ignore. In fact, I think we should acknowledge that according to the witness of Holy Scripture, blessing does frequently include materiality. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, they had abundant resources. In the Garden City to come, Uh, there will be abundant resources. As I often say, the way things started and the way things are going to be in the age to come should inform the way we think about our lives now. And, you know, Jesus came to redeem us uh, and to bring back what was lost in the beginning. So there should be an expectation of abundance in our lives. And as we look through Scripture and just kind of survey you know, some of the key people, we see hints of uh, this kind of blessing being restored in their lives. For instance, we look at Abraham, you know, incredibly important figure in redemptive history. We're told that he was very old, this is at the end of his life, and that the Lord had blessed him in every way. And the fact is that we know from other scriptures that part of that blessing included the fact that Abraham was immensely wealthy. It's it's something that should be acknowledged that showed up as a part of what it meant for Abraham to be blessed in every way. We look at David, 
uh, on the occasion actually of giving a very generous offering, David said as part of a prayer, wealth and honor come from you. Wealth and honor come from you. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We see Jesus, while talking about how that we shouldn't chase after material things and that we should hold material things loosely, he then said that if we'll seek his kingdom first, those things will in fact be added to us. Um, he, he was making a point that there are more important things than material things, but it was kind of like, oh, by the way, and if you seek the kingdom first, these things will come. And those things, in fact, included, he, he, he was referring in part to the fact people shouldn't worry about what they're going to wear because God clothed the, the, the flowers. In fact, he clothed the flowers in a way that they were dressed in more splendor than Solomon was. And, and, and then he says, don't worry about it because I'm going to, you know, seek first my kingdom, I'll give you these things. I don't know that that means all of us are going to dress nicer than Solomon, but um, you can smile when I say that. But, I, 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 but, but he wasn't afraid to uh, speak to the fact that if, if our priorities are right, if we're thinking properly, if we're seeking his kingdom first, then part of what we should expect, not chase, but expect, so we're going to be blessed, blessed in those kind of ways. The Apostle Paul, again, while encouraging people to be generous, which is the point he's really making, mentions as a part of that whole thought package, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You will be enriched in every way. Um, and then uh, I just actually noticed this last week um, for the first time that it ever really uh, stood out to me. Uh, John is in heaven uh, getting the revelation of Jesus Christ and he sees these angels around the throne and, and he writes, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. It's just kind of interesting that part of how they praise Jesus is they talk about how he's worthy to receive power, and wealth, and these other good things. So my, my point, just as an, kind of an introductory uh, statement, is that this is a discussion that we ought not be afraid of. The acknowledgement that part of being blessed by God can include being blessed in ways that uh, show up as material blessings. Again, our faith, our relationship with Jesus is so much bigger than any of that. All right, if you hear me teach week after week, year after year, rarely do I talk about money and things, but that's what I'm talking about today. And so I'm saying that's part of, part of the reality uh, of what it looks like to be blessed. Our, our faith is so much bigger than that. Our relationship with Jesus is so much bigger than that. But what most of us have experienced is that part of what has happened as we follow Jesus is that we find ourselves blessed in ways beyond anything we ever would have imagined and that those blessings often include the, the things that we enjoy in our lives. Now, material blessings will look different for each of us according to who we are, according to our calling, according to what God is doing in our lives that's more important than material things. 
They vary from time to place. I've been in developing countries where uh, a family who owns two goats instead of one goat is considered to be incredibly rich. You know, so context matters, place matters. What we've been called to do matters. Um, you know, so, so, but nonetheless, we can't be afraid of acknowledging that this is part of what we should expect to happen in our lives. I'm struck by the idea, as I taught at some length two weeks ago, that God loves and cares for the haves and the have-nots. And uh, I think this is very important perspective and kind of new ground that I'm breaking in my teaching here at the Life Christian Church. I was very impressed by the, the, the man who's considered to be one of the greatest scholars on the Old Testament in uh, recent church history, a man named Walter Brueggemann, who in his book, Peace, talked about God's love for the haves and the have-nots, and Brueggemann's particular approach to the Old Testament has led him to make a heavy emphasis on issues of justice, on issues of liberation, tremendous concern for the poor. That's typically the perspective that Brueggemann writes from. So it was particularly interesting for him to talk about how God loves the haves and the have-nots. When we talk about the have-nots, we're talking about the fact, and by the way, the reason I'm talking so fast is because I preached longer than I should have in the first service, and I'm trying not to do that this service, and so I'm going to avoid temptations to stop and comment on every comment that I commented on when I commented on it the first time. So anyway, there's a large body of Old Testament prophetic attention, uh, tradition that was written by, to, or about people who were in great need and were often fighting for survival, like the Jews enslaved in Egypt or the Jews who were in exile. They wrote and, and lived from a place of intense need, even uh, the need to survive. But what the, and, and so Brueggemann calls these the have-nots. There's a have-not prophetic tradition in the Old Testament that's expressed in passages like Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is fascinating that God sees the people in their misery. These are the have-nots. And what he does is he promises to move them from not having to having. He, he sees them in their misery, he says, and he doesn't say, this is great, this is what I want. I want you to be miserable. That's not what he wants. He moves them from misery to a good and spacious land and a land flowing with milk and honey. This expresses the heart of God. He loves the have-nots, but his desire isn't for the have-nots to keep not having. His desire is for the have-nots to move to having because that's what God wants for the people who are in covenant with him. And I, I say that and at the same time want to state the obvious, Scripture also calls us to a special care and concern for the poor, and this is part of our responsibility. But God's love for the poor includes him not necessarily wanting them to be poor, but to help them move into a place of abundance. And then uh, Brueggemann talks about the haves, and he acknowledges the fact that 
that there's a large body of the Old Testament prophetic tradition written by to or about people who were not in a position of financial or material need, but they, in fact, were people who had abundant resources. For instance, Solomon. When you're reading Solomon's writing, he's not like the slaves, his ancestors in Egypt. He's, they've moved from have not to have, and Solomon has a whole lot. And so, uh, so Brueggemann makes the point that, that God not only loves the have-nots, but he also loves, uses the haves, and that there's a different perspective between people who have and people who have not. And here's what Brueggemann writes. People, and I think you can see it on the screen behind me, people who are well-off have very different perceptions of life and a very different psychological agenda from those who must worry about survival. Both are in the Bible, and while church theology has taken the Bible's theology of survival seriously, it has been less perceptive about the Bible's theology of management and celebration. Here are those two words. That's what I'm going to focus on for the rest of our time today. Management and celebration. It is important for us to observe that this other theology of proper management and joyous celebration is also biblical. Moreover, it is likely in our cultural setting, and Brueggemann is writing to people like us, it is likely in our cultural setting that this theology is more appropriate to lots of folks who are increasingly well off. Now, I realize there are gradations of have in this room, that there are gradations of well off in this room. I acknowledge that. But by and large, as I said a couple of weeks ago before I move on to completely fresh stuff, by and large, we we are a people who are well off. In a, in a historic perspective, the, the, the poorest of us have more th than many times the richest have had in the past. You can turn on a light, and I bet it, wherever you live, the light comes on. And uh, uh, I, 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 I imagine most of us not only have a car, which is something unimaginable for people, you know, uh, uh, throughout history, but, but probably even uh, have an air conditioning that works in it, something no one could ever have imagined. Some of you are saying, I wish I had air conditioning. Well, I don't know what to say. But uh, uh, health, the, the access to health care we have. I mean, by, by a historic perspective, we have so many things that so few people have ever had in history. And by a global perspective, this is true as well. Um, Richard uh, Stearns, in his wonderful work called Unfinished, wrote that if someone makes $40,000 a year, they make more money than 99% of the people in the re in, throughout the, uh, the globe. That if someone makes even $13,000 a year, they're making more than 90% of people across the globe. I'm simply making the point, when I talk about the haves, most of us are in the category of the haves. And so we have to figure out what we're going to do about ourselves. And I think the Christian mentality, whether explicit or implicit, for a long time has been, we should feel bad because we have. We should feel guilty. We should apologize for it. We should tell everybody how sorry we are that we somehow found ourselves in a position, no fault of our own, where we're incredibly blessed and the blessing includes. That's kind of the mentality that at least I certainly grew up with, and that's what I think a lot of us kind of fight against. What are we going to do about the fact 
that we're so incredibly blessed. Well, the Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Philippians that he learned how to both live in need and he learned how to live in plenty. And there probably are some of us in this room right now who need to learn or are having to learn how to live with need, but I want to tell you that God's heart, I believe, is to move you from need to plenty. And at the same time, probably most of us in this room, the challenge that we have is learning to live with plenty. How do we live with plenty? The Apostle Paul said that he had to learn how to live with both. And when he wrote that, he was in a place where he was experiencing plenty because a financial gift had just come basically to his ministry. So, Here's what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to tell the people he was serving who happened to be wealthy. He said, first of all, a cautionary statement, people who want to be rich fall into all sorts of temptations and traps. They are caught by foolish and harmful desires that drag them down and destroy them. The love of money causes all kinds of trouble. Most of us know that in the King James. The love of money is the root of evil. It doesn't say, friends, and you know this, it doesn't say money is the root of evil, the love of money. So he's going to make a distinction here between if your life is about chasing money and things, you're going to live a pretty unfulfilling life. If, if you, Jesus said you have to choose whether you love God or love money. If the choice is to love money, frankly, my friend, you're going to live a messed up life. I don't know what else to tell you. It's just the fact. You're going to fall in all kinds of trouble. Things are not going to work out well for you. It won't matter how much money you have. You're still going to be missing what Jesus in another place called true riches, which is this whole package of life, abundant life, that's bigger than money and things, okay? So first of all, the caution. We can't make our life about money and things. We certainly can't make our faith about money and things, which is kind of the, you know, there's the poverty mentality, and then on the other side, there are those who seem to think that the reason we're in covenant with God is so that he can bless us materially. There's a, there's a balance in here somewhere. And part of it is, is to not love money, to not chase it, to not make our lives about it. But then Paul doesn't say, and now tell all those people to give, give up all their money sell their houses, and become poor. That's not what he says. He tells them how to teach people who have plenty. He says, warn the rich people of this world not to be proud or to trust in wealth that is easily lost. Tell them to have faith in God. Listen to this language, guys. This is amazing. Tell them to have faith in God who is rich and blesses us with everything we need to enjoy life. I mean, that's something worth meditating on for a week, is just to think about God who is rich and who blesses us with everything we need to enjoy life. Instruct them to do as many good deeds as they can and to help everyone remind the rich to be generous and share what they have. This will lay a solid foundation for the future so they will know what true life is really like. So what does he say to people with plenty? He says, don't make your life about money and things, essentially. However, enjoy the good things that God has given you because they came from a rich God and share the things that God has given you. So we come back to what Brueggemann called the proper 
uh, management of the have is to understand joyous celebration and proper management. So let's spend the rest of our time on this. Two things to focus on to learn to live with plenty. Two things to focus on to learn to live with plenty. First, joyous celebration. We must enjoy God's good gifts. If you gift your child, how many parents are in the room? Can I see your hand if you're a parent? If you gift your child a bicycle, by the way, I don't know if people still do that, if kids are allowed to ride bikes anymore. Are they allowed to ride bikes anymore? It's like like two helmets and stuff around their knees, and you're in a helicopter over them, and the, the, the bumper sticker says helicopter parent, where when I was a kid, they gave you a bike and said, we'll see you tomorrow, you know? And uh, that was about all the instruction. Anyway, assuming people still, I don't even know, I'm just trying to make sure that I can give an example that even relates to people anymore. If you give your child a bicycle, What the way your child honors you is to enjoy it. Now, there's a balance to this, right? Because um, um, if the child then begins to look at you as if your primary role is to give them gifts, something's wrong, the child needs to be trained to understand that that isn't true. What you hope they will do is properly enjoy it and that their, their relationship with you will be strengthened by gratitude. That, that they'll be, hey, hey, dad, hey, mom, thank you so much for this. And, and then they honor you by enjoying the bicycle. Some people's theology would be to say, when God gives us a thing, we shouldn't even like the thing. God forbid that we would actually like the thing, but that if we really love God, we would just give the thing up. And the fact is, I don't think that that's the heart of God the Father. I think he gives us a thing, and he wants us to enjoy the thing he gave us. Now, we're not supposed to worship the thing. We don't start to, you know, now we're, we're, we're snuggling up with a bicycle every night instead of, you know, our parent to read us the, the story. That to, but, but we enjoy the thing, and we use it in a proper way. And uh, so it is, I think, with the gifts that God gives us. I'm sure you're following the analogy better than I stated it. You probably figured it out in your mind five minutes ago. But, but he gives us a gift, and he wants us to enjoy the gift. And we honor him when, in fact, we do. And I, and I think that this is what God wants for us. This rich God who blesses us with all things to enjoy, I believe gets great pleasure when we just enjoy the good and beautiful things that he brings into our life. You know, does the kid feel guilty because their parent gave him a bicycle? Do you want them? Of course not. And I don't think we're supposed to like feel bad because, oh man, I feel so bad. I got a big bonus last year. Oh, I just feel terrible. I, don't. I didn't get a big bonus now. I'm talking for you. And then secondly, and where I want to spend the rest of my time, is that we must properly then manage the things that we've been given. We must properly steward the resources we've been given. And that's really now what we're talking about during this series is we're talking about stewardship. So this is where I'm going to focus. A steward, 
as most of you know, in a biblical context, understands that God is the owner of all that is, all we are and all we have, and that we are stewards of God's property. We are to manage what is his. We are to invest and make more of it. And we are to offer it back to him to use as he pleases whenever and however he asks for it. Now, stewardship, of course, is about the whole of our lives. Our time, our talent, our bodies, our families, our jobs, our resources. Good stewards recognize it's all his. All of it is his. Everything we have comes from God and part of stewardship implies accountability. We are accountable to him for it. I love the way this is demonstrated in a famous passage in the Psalm in the Psalms when Psalm 24 says, "The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it." How much of what's on this planet is his? It's all his. The planet is his. Yet at the same time, the 115th Psalm tells us that the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. The fact that he's given the earth to mankind doesn't mean the earth is ours, does it? Of course not. We understand from the teachings of Scripture, we are stewards of the planet. We are stewards of everything that is. So on one hand, we can say it's ours. On the other hand, we know even when we say it's ours, it's his. This is true about every good thing in our lives. Our children, for those of us who are parents, are on one hand, we can say they're ours, they're my children. But at the same time, you know, when we dedicate our children to the Lord, we're acknowledging that there's someone bigger than us, that ultimately, more importantly, they're his, and we're to be stewards. And when we're stewards, then we also know that we're going to have to give account for what's his that he gave us to take care of. I have a friend who um, loves to sail, and uh, he had a very wealthy friend who said to him, if someone gave you a sailboat, uh, what would you name it? And this guy said, I would name it Blessing, because that's the only way I'll ever own a sailboat. We're not talk they weren't talking about little stand-on-them-by-yourself sailboats out someplace. Uh, the, he's talking about a big boat. And, and so a few weeks later, the, the, the wealthy friend took my friend to the marina and sitting there in a slip was a beautiful sailing boat. One could almost call it, it was of such a magnitude, you almost could call it a, a, a sailing yacht. It was a very expensive boat and etched on the back of the boat, I think you call that the aft, uh, was the word blessing. And this guy says to my friend, listen, this is my boat. I'm going to maintain ownership of this boat, but I'm going to give it to you to, to use. And I'm going to give it to you to use under three conditions. First of all, you have to enjoy it. This is a true story, guys. He says you have to enjoy it. You have to you have to ha have your family. You have to have your friends. Um, you, you, you know, you want to have parties, have parties. Um, uh, and my friend loved to race. And he said, uh, you, you know, you, 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 since you love to race, you, you race it as often as you want. He said, secondly, you have to take care of it. You have to take care of it better than you would take care of it if your name was on the title. And third, at some point I'm going to come and I'm going to ask for it back. And when I ask for it back, 
You have to give it back to me, no questions asked, for me to use however I please. And so for, for three years, my friend enjoyed that boat. And after three years, this guy comes back and he says, I'm ready to, to have my boat back. And sure enough, it was in better shape than it was when he'd loaned it to the guy. And my friend gave him, didn't, did he give it? He returned to him his boat. That's a beautiful picture of stewardship. And this is the way I think God relates to us as it concerns the good things he gives us in our lives. Stephen Covey wrote in his wonderful book, First Things First, a stewardship is a trust. A steward is one called to exercise responsible care over possessions entrusted to him or her. Stewardship involves a sense of being accountable to someone or something higher than self. So let's dig into kind of the classic approach to this. Um, what most people think about when they hear the word stewardship in a church context is money. And though stewardship is about so much more than money, and I think it's really important we understand everything in our life is a stewardship, the fact is that money is a part of the conversation and it is an inordinately important part of the conversation. And the reason for that is that our hearts are connected to money in ways that are very unique. In fact, Jesus said that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. If you want to know what someone loves, watch what they do with their money. Because our heart follows our money, or our money follows our heart. However you want to say it, both are true. Where our money is, that's where our heart is. And I guess this is why money is discussed a lot in the Bible. Now, it's not a, you know, this is not, if you're new to us, and if you, if you made the mistake of bringing a friend today for the first time, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I, I, and, and now I hear the pastor is up there talking about money. You should know week after week after week after week after week, all that we say about money is about a 60-second uh, uh, blurb about giving people the opportunity to tithe and give. Now, I'm not afraid of the subject, and every once in a while, when the text leads us to this conversation in a sermon, I will talk about it, because I know if I'm going to be a good pastor, this is something that I have to deal with. Jesus talked a lot about money. Money is talked about some 2,000 times in Scripture. In 16 out of 38 parables, Jesus talked about money and possessions. So for a pastor to not talk about it would be an abrogation of one's responsibility. And I'm, I'm going to talk about it here for the next few minutes, and I'll touch a little bit on it, and I hope you'll come back next Sunday in the last Sunday of our stewardship series, and then we'll move on to other topics that are very important as well. Stewardship, again, of our resources is about the totality of how we manage and invest the resources we've been given. And my first goal is to get us to frame everything in our life in terms of stewardship, including money. And having said that, I want to take the opportunity of this stewardship series to discuss giving as a part of the larger stewardship discussion, because it's talked about a lot in the Bible, and specifically, I want to talk a little bit about the subject of tithing as the gold standard, as it's generally considered to be, of giving for believers. What's the deal? I know many of you have heard that word. You don't even understand what it means, what it's referring to, where it came from, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, today. 
So, the first time that we see tithing, and let me, let me pause and say this. How is this specifically related to the stewardship discussion? What I believe to be true about tithing, and many others over many thousands of years would say as well, is that when we practice tithing, this is a unique way that we acknowledge God's ownership over everything else in our lives. And this is part of how the tithe in Scripture is structured. And though I'm not going to get explicitly into that part of, the, of what Scripture says about that today, fundamentally, that's the relationship between tithing and stewardship. The, tithing, the tithe is structured that when we offer to God that first part of our income, that we're acknowledging that God is the owner of everything else, okay? And but what I really want to focus on today is the spirit of the tithe and, and what I consider to be the beauty of the tithe, as opposed to a focus on religious duty and obligation and the fact that Moses taught it to be done and all of that. I want to talk about the, the spirit of the tithe, the beauty of the tithe, why we should love this idea and the practice of tithing in our lives. The first time that we see Tithing in the Bible is when Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 14, Abraham, who was chosen out of everybody in the world to play a very unique role in the life of people of faith. Abraham is not one of many characters in the Bible. A Abraham is a seminally important character in the Bible because God made covenant with him and told Abraham that it was from him and his seed that the world would be blessed ultimately through the Messiah. And we learn things about God's relationship with Abraham long before Moses and the law that are very instructive for how we're to live under faith in relationship with God through Jesus now. So when you're talking about and when you talk about Abraham, there's a seminal importance to who he was. And then secondly, when you talk about a Bible doctrine, there's a law in theology, and I know you're very excited to learn about laws in theology today. There's a law in theology called the law of first mention. And it simply means that the first time a thing is mentioned informs it's mentioned throughout Scripture. And so it becomes important to look at the first time a thing is mentioned, and it should color the way we think about that thing throughout Scripture. And this is a beautiful example. The first time tithing is mentioned is when Abraham tithed to the king of Jerusalem, a guy named Melchizedek. This guy is mentioned in the New Testament as a type of Christ, um, some would say even perhaps the pre-incarnate Christ. There are different views on that except to say that without question, this guy is at the very least a representative of Jesus Christ as he interacts with Abraham in this story. And I'll show you a New Testament passage in a moment that backs this up. What's important to me is Abraham tithes to this guy in response to a covenant that they made and a blessing that this guy Melchizedek offered him. Here it is, Genesis 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Why is it important that he brought out bread and wine? Because bread and wine is a covenant meal. Jesus did not start the bread and wine thing as covenant at the Last Supper. He was doing something that had been done for many thousands of years. People who understand Scripture understand when you see something referring to bread and wine, it's a covenant 
context. Bread, of course, meaning we're flesh of flesh, the wine representing we are one blood. This was, Melchizedek didn't bring out, you know, chicken cutlet sandwiches here. He brought out bread and wine. It's more than lunch. There's covenant making happening here. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. This is Abram before his name gets changed to Abraham. Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise to God most high. And watch Abram's response to this. He gave him a tenth or a tithe. The words mean the same exact thing. Tithe means tenth. Tenth means tithe. He gave him a tenth of everything. What I see here is Abram modeling what it looks like to be in covenant with God and to be blessed by God and for our instinctive response to be to give him a tenth of everything. Now, this isn't the only passage that supports this idea. There's a body of evidence through Scripture that talks about tithing in a variety of ways. But when I think about tithing, this is what I think about first. I think about a human being responding to a covenant with Jesus and the blessing that comes by saying, here, I want to return to you a tenth of everything. You see the story referred to in the New Testament in Hebrews when we're told for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. The occasion of their meeting was Abraham had just fought a battle and won a victory over some a triumvirate of evil kings. Uh, that's what that's referring to. Uh, and Melchizedek blessed him. This is really important. Notice the connection between blessing and tithe. And, and also notice this. My emphasis today, though one could be made, but my emphasis today and my emphasis of teaching about tithing isn't when you tithe, you're blessed. There's truth to that. It's unavoidable in Scripture. But that's not really what I think about first when I think about tithing. I think about we're blessed and we tithe. This is a total different motivation around the subject of tithing. Abraham wasn't blessed because he tithed. He probably was, but that's not the emphasis. You get the point? He's blessed, and so he tithes. This is his response to covenant and blessing. All right, I need to see I'm commenting on things that I commented about that I shouldn't comment on because I'll run out of time. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. And then it talks about this mystical figure, Melchizedek, this type of Christ, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. This is why we see him as a type of Christ remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi. Now he jumps forward and the Jewish people reading this letter to the Hebrews could track this very easily, a little more difficult for us today. But he jumps forward now to the Levites who were the priestly tribe who lived off the tithe because they were full-time ministry in the Old Testament church 
who were commanded by Moses now to receive the tithe. Abraham wasn't commanded to tithe. He tithed in response to blessing. He was doing it under faith. Now Moses commands the Levites to receive the tithe from people. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them In other words, this isn't a part of the Levites. This predates the Levites and the writer of Hebrews is saying is is a reality that exists now. He says this guy Melchizedek is a priest who lives forever. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Again, notice the connection, tithing, blessing, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser Abraham is blessed by the better Melchizedek. And then here's a powerful statement. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he, now he's writing here in a larger context about Jesus. He's actually, his point here is not about tithing. He talks about this on his way to make a point about Jesus. And so he brings the subject back to Jesus, which if you read the whole thing, you know that's what's going on here. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he, Jesus, much as Melchizedek, all the way back in Genesis, receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So here he says, people receive the tithe in order to do ministry, is what the purpose of the tithe is in Scripture. But really the tithe isn't going to them or an institution. Really the one who's receiving the tithes is him. I mean, this this is actually pretty straightforward when you just look at the text. And so let's say in this case, so, so first of all, he's making the point that Abraham is blessed and he tithes. And then he said the Levites were commanded to receive the tithe. But then he says, really, the tithe isn't going to the Levites or to any person. Really, though it's received by somebody who's back in the back room with a calculator calculating the deposit that's going to go in the bank to help fund the ministries of the church the next week. That's really not who the tithe is for. Who the tithe is for, who it's really received by, he says, is by him. See, there's a lot in all of that, and I don't have time to dig into it like I would like, but this is what I want you to feel the beauty of this. I want you to feel almost the mystery of this. I want you to understand there's something more going on than a transaction between an individual and their church or wherever it is they choose to tithe. There's something more going on. There's something that has to do with covenant. There's something that has to do with blessing. There's something to do with how we respond to it. There's something that has to do with the fact that, in fact, when we, when we write a tithe check or text or tithe or whatever it is that we do, that really it's about our relationship with him. And this is why I talk about tithing in terms of keeping our covenant with him. It's about him. It's about who he is. It's about, you know, imagine Jesus at the Last Supper breaking the bread and the wine and saying, this is my blood and this is my body. That's what we're tithing in response to. Imagine the blessing that's come to us through Jesus Christ. That's what we're responding to. Not some religious duty. Though it got commanded under the law, tithing was way before that and tithing is way after that. It's about What happened to Abraham thousands of years ago, guys, is actually relevant to us today. Romans chapter 4 
tells us that Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. Galatians chapter 3 tells us those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham. Hear this, guys. Those of us, this is talking about us now, who rely on faith, in other words, who are in relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed along with Abraham. Guys, there's a whole package to what it means to be blessed along with Abraham. And what did Abraham do when he was blessed? He responded in the way that I've described. He redeemed us, Jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so this was the beginning of tithing and then it continues throughout Scripture in a variety of ways. For instance, very similarly, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who again in redemptive history is very important, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's at a place called Bethel. God shows up. He repeats to him the covenant promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. And, 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 and Jacob's response to God blessing him is to say, uh, uh, Genesis uh, 28, verse 20, 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going. There's verses of God's blessing. And then he says, okay, if you do what you said you're going to do, God, give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, he's put a stone at this place called Bethel to make an altar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a to you. It's like, where did that come from? He's having this amazing spiritual experience. God's showing up. I promise you, your seed's going to be as the sand on the seashore and the stars, all that stuff. And it's, and, 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 and it's like, what, what does tithing have to do with it? Where did that come from? God didn't say, and if you tithe, I'll keep my promise. So what is, he just said, I'm going to bless you. 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 And Jacob says, I'm going to tithe. I mean, it's, it's almost crazy, but this is what happens. Tithing is a response to covenant and blessing that comes out of a heart of gratitude from people who are saying, thank you. And now I want to be involved in what you're doing in the world. So people of faith have been practicing tithing for thousands of years since then. You know, Moses takes what happened under faith and he commands it to be practiced. He, um, and we're not under the law in that way now. And thankfully, tithing predates it and supersedes it. But during the time of the law, the Levites were commanded to, to, to receive the tithe. Deuteronomy 14.23, this is in the Living Bible, but I like the way it said, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. Or you look at Leviticus, a tithe of everything belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Most Bible scholars believe that Solomon was referring to the tithe when he wrote in Proverbs, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits, which is typically how we think about tithing. It's the first of our income. With the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. There is this, this promise of blessing that when, when we practice tithing, but again, to me, that's a secondary point, and I think it's important to state that. And then there's this famous passage in Malachi. Everybody talks about tithing, quotes it, and the reason they do is because it's awesome. It's where Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah and the new order that will be established 
This is like, I think this is the last chapter in the Old Testament, actually, where Malachi says, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The purpose of the tithe is to fund ministry so people can be fed. Um, in our case, most of the time, that means spiritually. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then God says, and this is what we're going to focus on our last few seconds here, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. One other thing, and I'm going to come back to that, and I'm going to finish. Admittedly, and I'll talk a little bit about this next week if anybody comes back, and I always just, every week's like, oh, I hope they'll come back. There's not much said in the New Testament specifically referencing tithing. But there are two things that people typically think about when they consider that. First of all, these, these first followers of Jesus were Jews. They've been practicing, their people have been practicing tithing for thousands of years. To teach them that they should tithe would be like teaching them they have to breathe. This is just, this was part of who they were. This was a, not needed to be talked about. That's the first thing I would say. But the second thing I would say is that the, the one time tithing is mentioned really specifically and explicitly is mentioned by Jesus. And it's a powerful statement. He's, 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 um, correcting people who are performing religious duty with wrong motivations, the Pharisees, and letting them know that doing their religious duty did not change the fact that what was going on in their heart was more important than performing the duty. But he doesn't tell them then not to perform the duty. He just says you need to perform the duty, but do it with a heart that's connected to the bigger picture of the things God cares about. And here's what he says, Matthew 23, 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And then Jesus says, and in the Greek language, this is called a moral imperative. No gray area here. He says, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. And that's the spirit of what I try to capture when I teach about tithing is that we're tithing not out of religious obligation, we're tithing out of love. We're tithing with hearts, hopefully, that, that are about covenant, that are about being in relationship with Jesus, that are about the, the, the things that are more important than money ever could be. In this case, Jesus talks about justice and mercy and so on and so forth. So we, we're, we're not doing it out of religious duty. The fact that it is a religious duty doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, by the way. Um, showing up at church this morning. I assume there probably are some of you who at least at some point in your past, you went to church just because you knew it was something you should do right? And then you're doing what you should do, and at some point you discovered this is life-giving, and you went from I have to go to I get to go, right? Well, sometimes we do the thing that we know we should do because we should do it, but hopefully we grow past where we're doing it because we should do it, and if it's a God thing that he's asked us to do, there'll be life in that thing, see? And so, yeah, we should do the things we should do, but, but ultimately, God wants more than that from us. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our worship. He wants it to be more about the transaction that occurs, whether that's church attendance or praying every morning or reading the Bible or, or practicing any other spiritual discipline like tithing. Hopefully, our heart is going with that. And so, 
thank one of you for... Uh... And so I just really, and I'm finished, I really felt impressed today. I actually started off writing a different sermon. And as I got into it, you know, I actually cut out, believe it or not, about three pages of material. Because it, when it's all said and done, I want us to fall in, in love with Jesus and have a sense of how blessed we are and have a sense of how we respond to being blessed. And I believe part of, not the only thing by any stretch of the imagination, but part of how we respond to being people who've been blessed with so much is to say, in this one small area of our life, here. It's not first and foremost about your relationship with this church. Now, this church can't do what it's supposed to do unless people are faithful in tithing and giving, okay? So there's no sense in acting as if that isn't true, but God's always provided people who've provided those things. This isn't first about your relationship with the church. This is about your relationship with Jesus. Mortal men receive the tithes here. He receives them there. And that's the point.